The Hoop Collective is presented by QuickBooks. New business? No problem. Success starts with Intuit QuickBooks. Learn more at quickbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA. We did small sample size theater back in November, early December. And so now we have come to the time in the year where we have very large sample sizes. So it is time for the annual large sample size theater. You know what that means if you listen to this podcast. Joining me from Los Angeles is Kevin Arnovitz. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Joining me from Seattle, the machine, Kevin Pelton. Doing well. Our sample size experts. So, guys, we are into the last uh, uh, sections of the season here, last section of the season. And when we were talking about um, what we we were, uh, you know, what, what would be a good idea to talk about for this, the one thing that really, really stuck stuck out was the Boston Celtics, who are the epitome of the team that you have to wait for the large sample size to make a passing judgment on. Um, let me just say that I went back and looked. Uh, people like to, to talk about the um, the Celtics from the, the new year onward because it's a nice delineation point. And they talk about how they're number one defense, um, one of the best records, if not the best record since that time. But they actually started their turnaround, if you will, slightly before that. Um, so I went and looked at their first, um, 35 games. They were 16 and 19, sort of the the first part of the season. They ranked 22nd in the league in offensive rating during that time. They ranked, um, ninth, ninth defensively. They weren't ever a bad defensive team, but not the team that they were after that. And specifically, and we've talked about that. We talked about Stephen at the time, Mr. Pelton, their, their shooting numbers there. They were way down in the bottom 10, 24th in effective field goal percentage in the, that's the 16 and 19 first 35 games. Since then the Celtics are 28 and 10, a huge about, about the same uh, number of games, 38 games. Number one in defense, of course, during that stretch, um, by a lot, by almost five points per 100 possessions. So it's just, so they are the difference between the number one defensive team and the number two defensive team since late December. Number two defensive team is that Dallas Mavericks is four and a half points per 100. To illustrate that, the difference between the number two Dallas Mavericks and the team that's four and a half points behind them, you'd have to go all the way down to uh, the 18th, Oklahoma City. So the spread between number one and number two since January 1st, or actually in this case, I'm looking at from December 29th, is the same as between two and 18. Um, And then to show their effective field goal percentage since then and, and what's happened, they are sixth. They've moved up to sixth in that time frame. So Pelton, I just illustrated to you some of the the basic uh, stats that I can look up. You look at things on a much deeper level, 
And this large sample size has shown you what about the Boston Celtics? That they should be considered the favorites to win the Eastern Conference. And he just said it. I, I think it has become abundantly clear because we can talk about the splitting out since January 1st, or as you pointed out, since the 16 and 19 start, or, you know, it was late January still where Jason Tatum was struggling and, and Tim Bontemps came on this pod and talked about how he'd been the unluckiest high volume shooter in the league in terms of how often his shots were going in relative to what you'd expect from him over the all the years of his career for which we have tracking data from second spectrum. But if you look at the entire season, Boston is number one in point differential in the Eastern Conference by it's now an enormous margin. They have done extremely well against quality opposition. Chris Forsberg, our former colleague who's now at NBC Sports Boston, pointed out they have the best record in the East against above 500 teams. I mean, I think there are some reasons to think that maybe what they're doing defensively isn't quite sustainable because, you know, they are number one in terms of opponent shooting luck. They're doing the the thing where they opponents don't make any threes against them. Again, Boston is the only team that has figured out how to consistently, with the exception of last year, an outlier. Uh, other than that, they've been in the top 10 and usually in the top five in opponent three-point shooting percentage every year going back, you know, at least a decade. Uh, so maybe that won't quite continue in terms of opponent shooting, but it doesn't need to because their opponent shot quality is also the second best in the league. This switching defense has caused teams all sorts of problems. Derek White has been a perfect seamless fit. And now all of a sudden you've got this starting five plus White and Grant Williams off the bench. Ime Odoka has seven guys that he really trusts and have been extremely effective. And what that allows them to do with White and Grant Williams coming in is play a variety of different styles. If you need two bigs, that's obviously what their starting lineup does. If you want to go small, put Grant Williams at the four, you know, and alongside Robert Williams or even Al Horford at times, you know, White allows them to kind of go three guard look. They can, I, I don't know what exactly other than just if one of these East teams really gets it together with their stars and it hasn't happened yet. I don't know what's, what beats them in a playoff series. I think they, they kind of stumbled on something, which was, I mean, we're, we're, we're not, Brian, it's, it's crazy to think we're not a, more than a couple of months removed from, oh, do they need to break those guys up? Uh, who says that you actually two wings is how you win in this league because it's just not working in Boston? Is Marcus Smart who you really want uh, as your nominal point guard and certainly as your functional point guard? But I think they've just kind of, and I don't want to you know, lay it on Schroeder or anything, but I, I think just sort of getting more complementary players who the sum of the parts add up to more in terms of servicing Tatum and, and to a lesser extent Brown in the offense. Um, I love the Derek White pickup. He's got the strength to defend. He's unselfish. He's exactly the kind of guy you would want to put around Tatum at the guard spot. Um, you know, Tice was a nice pickup. I don't think he's going to play a hell of a lot in the playoffs, but they're a team that's not complete. They're not terribly deep. And that, that's And if you're somebody who believes depth is important, I tend to think it's less important in the playoffs. Uh, to Kevin's point, they've got a really nice, tight seven-man rotation. You know, if, if you trust Pritchard, it's seven. They don't much of a choice. They, they really, right. <laughs> it's not like he's, uh, it's not like Udoka is sitting guys who otherwise should right. be playing. That's what they've got. We did but, make but, every three he took yesterday. Yes, he did. Uh, Pritchard was he five for five or three for four for four from, from three. But but those seven guys work and and they're flexible. 
And Al Horford is having a wonderful season. And it's kind of one of my favorite stories just because, you know, he became this one of these sort of cautionary bloated contracts for an old guy, gets shipped away, and, and now has sort of found a restoration in Boston. Allows you to do a lot defensively. They just have, you know, their guards are strong. Their wings are versatile. And their bigs can switch out if need be. And it's just a really nice combination of defenders. I don't think they're going to be the most innovative offense in the playoffs. But then again, you could argue that the playoffs kind of don't necessarily reward that, that it is three yards in a cloud of dust and, and you put your hand in the ball, uh, put the ball in the hands of your creator. And and they, they certainly have that um, in, in Tatum and who's just had an incredible second half of the year. So I, I don't know if they're the favorite. I might be a little less bullish on uh, than, than, than Pelton is, but you know, give me another two weeks and I might change my mind. So you talked about Horford. That trade now stands as one of the seminal trades of the of the NBA year, uh, trading Kemba Walker and a first for Horford. Was there somebody else in that trade, Pelton? I can't remember. Moses Brown was in it, but uh, I don't think Brown. that was as consequential. Did you just a question? Did you just conjure that up? <laughs> Moses Brown's existence <laughs> yes. in that trade? It, it took me a second to remember oh, it. Fantastic. I want your yeah. brain. <laughs> Moses Brown, who uh, just signed a second 10-day contract with the Cavs today, I saw. Um, so that was a tremendous trade, just a just a tremendous trade. One of the first moves that Brad Stevens made as a lead executive, in addition to hiring Ime Udoka, which looked rough. Remember early in the season, he was just all over his players and things were going sideways. And you're like, wow, is Ime cut out for this? Um you know, now I'm, you know, I don't think he'll win coach of the year, but he will get consideration. And speaking of that, Pelton, should we be considering Robert Williams for defensive player of the year? Is he on that level? Well, it's kind of this fascinating question in Boston where is it Williams or is it Marcus Smart who's their best candidate? And, uh, you know, Smart has even taken to Twitter. Our, our buddy Seth Partnow of The Athletic tweeted something about defensive player of the year a few weeks back. And Smart quote tweeted it with, uh, you know, guards not being allowed to win the award because we haven't seen anyone do it since Gary Payton in 1995 96. And frankly, I think that makes sense because I think generally speaking, the you know, rim protection element is more important than what you can provide, even as is somebody like Marcus Smart, who is both as good as they come as an on-ball defender, and then also someone who makes a lot of plays as a help defender, takes a ton of charges. Like he's close to the the maximum of guard value. I still think it's probably not quite as important defensively as what a big does. But, uh, you know, when you have the the number one defense in the league by such a wide margin, you have to look at somebody from Boston. I will say, I think part of what makes the Celtics so special defensively is it's not so much about their elite individual defense, but the lack of places to attack. It's the lack of any weaknesses on defensively. And that's what allows you to switch as much as they do more than any team in the league and not give up mismatches. Right. Are there, you... there's, no, there's absolutely no yeah. pick on offense to run against Boston. And as you see in the playoffs, that is a that is a favorite tactic in the last several years with switching becoming preeminent, which is who do we want off the menu? Oh, hey, there's Lou Williams. You know, and I, I think there is no Lou Williams in Boston. There's not anything close. Do you, Pelton, are you saying that you'd like them to win the East because you because the the metrics are screaming it to you or do you like the matchups do you look at them against Milwaukee do you look at them against Philly do you look at them against uh, Chicago uh 
Brooklyn? Do you is it a matchup thing or is it just because you love the way their overall dashboard looks? I think it's more the former, but the metrics have been saying this for a long period of time here. And it, for a while, it seemed like, okay, there, there must be something wrong with the metrics if they're this high on Boston. And, uh, you know, as Bontemps has mentioned on the pod, for a period of time, it was them beating up on injured teams, lesser competition, things like that. And now all of a sudden it started shift and then they're doing this to good teams too. Uh, obviously yesterday in Denver on at altitude was an incredibly impressive performance. I was there for three quarters of their win over Brooklyn uh, at home at the TD garden. I had to leave early to catch my flight. So I watched the end of that uh, on TV from the airport, but you know, that maybe Ben Simmons comes back and makes that a slightly different matchup at some point in the playoffs. But Brooklyn didn't really have the size without him to deal with Tatum one-on-one and the Celtics probably had more defensive options to deal with Kyrie and and Kevin Durant than the Nets did on the other side. So, you know, I think that, that matchup in particular, that's probably the one team that I think can get to a level offensively that the Celtics may not be able to match. But again, you know, Boston was very impressive against them in a game with Kyrie on the court which who knows three games out of that series might not feature Kyrie, assuming yeah. that the Celtics that, would have home board. That game in Denver on Sunday, as somebody who's done about 20 or 30 West coast trips in my career, where you just go on the road with the team for five, four five, six games. I'm not sure how long this trip was. I think it was four. Um, and you know, you get to the Denver portion of it, which a lot of times is on the way back. By the time you get to Denver, um, you know, a week into the trip, which is what this was the case for these guys. It's just like, let's go home. <laughs> let's go home. I mean, you know, over the decades, Denver has just pounded teams uh, in that, you know, on the back end of long West Coast road trips. And uh, as someone who does it, who's done the travel, not had to actually play the games, but felt barely able to move by the time you get to Denver, I can appreciate it. And for them to go in there in that situation, Shoot 57% as a team, win by 20 in Denver. Now, granted, Denver was, was coming off of a long road trip themselves, and so that was sort of the the two forces coming together because sometimes when you return home after a long road trip, it's it's a little bit of a letdown. But still, uh, Tatum and, and Jalen Brown were both awesome in that game. It was one of their best defensive games or best uh, uh, reserve games they've had in a while. So you're absolutely right. Um by the way, we say all this, they'll probably lose to Oklahoma City after we record this on Monday <laughs> in the last that game always, of the road trip. That always happens. Trust me, that goes without saying on this podcast. Um, so, Arnovitz, we, we were talking coming into this podcast about the Milwaukee Bucks and the size of their uh, sample size on defense. Let me just point out that two years ago, uh, 2000, which was in the bubble, the Bucks had the number one overall defense. Um, I didn't look to see what their what they were in the bubble, um, but you know, elite top level defense. Uh, that was the year Giannis won Defensive Player of the Year and MVP, if I'm not mistaken. Um, last year, their championship year, they were um, uh, number nine in the. Uh, you know, overall in terms of defense, and let me look up their playoff number real quick where they ranked. Um, but this year they were, they were number one. I already looked it up. Okay. It, it was one of the great postseason defensive runs. Right. Right. Yeah. So ninth during the regular season, but number one when it counted. This year, they're 15th overall in defense. A precipitous 
slide and you think that this sample size is significant, what are you seeing in this potentially important aspect in the title chase? So if we do think it's significant, um, here's one reason. Now, obviously, Brooke Lopez has, was missing for just the first three quarters of the season. And Lopez had asserted himself really is, is one of the better interior defenders. And if all you need to do is look at the way the Milwaukee Bucks guarded inside of five feet, uh, kind of from the start of, uh, of the Bootenholzer, you know, Lopez era, um, they gave up very few shots in that area. And when they gave them up, the, the Bucks for a couple of seasons were decidedly better than the next best team. They just didn't allow you to score near the rim. They Lopez had an uncanny ability to just wall off the lane. Um, it helps, especially you know when your guards at the, at the top of the floor can really fight through screens. They were always a much more traditional and somewhat conservative no middle. They didn't switch as much. Uh, and then, of course, they took a beating for that in the playoffs uh, for not being flexible enough to respond to kind of more you know higher leverage situations where a switch might have been effective. They become much more creative last season and then go and have one of the great defensive postseason runs, as I said earlier. So it's very easy to say that, hey, you swap in Bobby Portis for uh, all of his exuberance, certainly not the defender Brooke Lopez is, certainly not the size Brooke Lopez is, um, and that can account for some. Uh, Does it account for all? And then there's a second question, Brian, which is, does it matter? I mean, you know better than anybody. Like the recent history of the NBA are a lot of, traditionally successful teams that have already showed their medal in the postseason who kind of flip the switch. I mean, it, it is, it is such a familiar phrase. We know exactly what you mean when you say that team flips the switch. What it means is they sort of ignore some of the more prosaic work a day responsibilities of the regular season. You know, I remember I fell into this trap with the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2015, the Hawks had won 60 games. I think the Cavs were below league average defensively. And I kind of said, Hey, no team that's ever ranked below X has ever came up, come out of and represented a, a team in the conference finals or, or rather in the finals. Sure enough, when the lights were on and they were engaged, they were an exceptional, not just a better defensive team, but exceptional. One tends to think that whether Lopez is healthy or not, and, and it seems to be, he will be somewhat healthy. And, and frankly, they also played key possessions defensively without him last season when they went small. Once Giannis, who is still maybe one of the best rim protectors in the league, irrespective of what position he plays, when Drew Holiday is sitting there at the point of attack, um, Middleton has good size and strength. He's not an elite defender, but he's a pretty damn good one. They'll be fine. And I think that's the question. I mean, to me, the sample size is significant. The question is, does it even matter how a team really fares defensively once they've already demonstrated that when it matters, they can defend? Three times a week, The Right Time with Bomani Jones podcast brings you the latest from technology, music, and the very best analysis of the games. Plus, they've got a community of friends, including Dominic Foxworth for Foxworth Fridays. That's The Right Time with Bomani Jones, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen, wherever you get your podcasts. And Monday and Wednesday are also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. If only starting your fitness journey was as easy as starting this podcast. The truth is, all the lift big, get big, and beach body ready in three weeks pressure stops most of us from even starting. And starting is what matters most. It's everything. Wherever you're beginning and wherever you want to be, Peloton encourages you to just start. With thousands of classes to get you moving and doing what you can, 
even if that's just a 10-minute low-impact class. They have those too. And when you're ready, take it up a gear with a 30-minute live DJ ride. Start with Peloton and find instructors that will keep you motivated to stay on your fitness journey. Learn the basics and build from there. Remember, doing something is everything. Get started with a Peloton bike or Bike Plus rental at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Terms apply. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Supercuts. Let's face it, life is busy. Between work and family and more work, our to-do lists have a way of getting longer instead of shorter. Luckily, Supercuts is here to make at least the haircut part of your life easy. Supercuts is perfect for people who need a haircut, but don't have a ton of time for a haircut. No more scouring the web for salons with availability. You can use the Supercuts app to find the location nearest to you and check in or just walk in. Another bonus, the salon shows estimated wait times, so you know exactly what you're in for. That way, you're only in salon when you need to be. Don't expect to stay a while. As for the cut itself, it's always super solid. Thanks to Supercut's highly trained stylists. Get in, get out, and get to that thing that you needed a haircut for. Whether you've got a big presentation coming up or a wedding, or you just need some upkeep, Supercut's makes getting a haircut effortless. It's not just any haircut. It's Supercuts. Check in now on the Supercuts app or on supercuts.com. Elton? So I, I think there's a concern in there for sure. I, I think a lot of this is about the absence of Brooke Lopez. You know, last year, as Kevin sort of alluded to, they were not as stout defensively in the restricted area as they had been, you know, two years ago in 2020 when, when Giannis did win that uh, defensive player of the year. Opponents shot 55% in the restricted area against Milwaukee, which is just wild. That went up to 61% last year. This year, it's 66%. Mm. And, you know, the the minutes with Giannis at center have actually been below that. Uh, they've been 60%. So a lot of this is when he's not on the court, uh, 63% in the restricted area when it's Giannis and Portis. This is uh, according to cleaning the glass, those splits. So Lopez will help a lot, but last year when they went small to finish games without Lopez, they were doing that with Giannis and PJ Tucker. And PJ Tucker is a guy who can protect the rim in his own right. And obviously an elite switch defender was a huge part of their run. They don't have the PJ Tucker this year. They hoped that was going to be Shemi Ojale. It didn't work out. They sent him to uh, the Clippers at the trade deadline. The pickups that they've had in the buyout market since the trade deadline have been on the perimeter with Javon Carter and DeAndre Bebry, you know, not guys who can fill this role. And so now when you put Giannis at center, it's usually Chris Middleton next to him at the four. And that's a much smaller group that uh, I don't think presents as much resistance. More generally, you know, we talk about this kind of with the Celtics starting five. We'll talk about it with another team in a bit here. I, I think last year's Milwaukee playoff run and some of these other teams have really opened my eyes to the value of size defensively and how important that still is. And Milwaukee, again, aside from the Lopez-Giannis group, is going to be undersized compared to most of the teams they're facing in the playoffs. And I do think that's a legitimate concern for them. So Milwaukee, obviously, as Kevin Arnovitz uh, alluded to, they've wandered a little bit with the focus. Those numbers at the rim are really illustrating uh, not having Lopez. There was a couple of times this year where I started to get worried about them. And then I would, I, I saw them play in person a couple of times. Um, and 
it it alleviated my concerns. At one point, they lost to the Denver Nuggets at home by 36 points. And uh, Mike Budenholzer called, from what I remember, it might not have been that game. I think it was that game. Uh, he called a little meeting with the veterans and were like, listen, do you guys want to play or not? And they were like, okay, we'll play. And then they went on this West Coast trip and scored like 135 points, like three or four games in a row. And it was like, oh, when they care, they're still really good. And when they're all together, because uh, Holiday's had injury issues, uh, as well as Middleton, and then, of course, Lopez on and off. Then they started lost a couple of games again. And then I saw them play against Brooklyn at home where they just were terrible down the stretch. And I was like, boy, maybe there's an issue. And then bam, they beat the heat. They win in Chicago. They play uh, uh, Phoenix at home and win by 10. Um, in, you know, they go into Utah and win and I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, and so I still am soft picking them to win the, East, but maybe I shouldn't. And I'm, I'm really doing it because I know the gear that Giannis showed, but you know, the thing is that it's true about if you're not a top 10 defensive team, winning the championship has historically been very difficult. That's a true statement. So I still feel like they're the team to beat in the East, but this defensive issue I think is worth pointing out. And I think you can't rely on Brooke, even though he's back. You can't, I don't know how much you can rely on him and you don't have PJ Tucker. So they might just not be quite as good as they were last year, Arnovitz. And that means, especially with the, with the increased competition in the East, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should reevaluate that. I mean, I, I don't think they're listen to it this way. I had higher expectations in terms of handicapping on, on March 21st, 22nd, um, than I do now. I, I thought at this point in the season, the demonstration on the road, okay, we're, we're starting to mobilize for the postseason. And yeah, I mean, Lopez is going to be crucial. He was so important in the Miami series when they really got their mojo. I mean, people forget they entered the postseason last year, just coming off a humiliating uh, loss in the bubble. And, and he is so crucial to what they do defensively. He allows Holiday to be even more aggressive than he is. I mean, he really, it, it's, it's, it's kind of where they, they won. I mean, for all of the talk about, oh, they, they get mired in rigor mortis on the offensive end in these playoff games, which is not entirely untrue at times. It, it, people never seem to grasp the fact that they were, they were just racking up wins and series wins because they were one of the best defensive scenes teams we've seen in recent history. And if that's not part of their repertoire, I'm absolutely with you. Like I still like them, but I like them less than I thought I would at this point. And look in, okay. in large sample size theater, Brooke Lopez is 79 minutes are the ultimate small sample size. We still don't know what we're going <laughs> right. to get from him in the playoffs. And if he is himself, it's a total game changer for them. Yes. We're, we're out of the Gershwin theater now back into the cherry lane. <laughs> Boy, was that a deep reference? Good God. Um, I will say that they traded Dante DiVincenzo, who wasn't having a very, very good year, but still is a young two-way wing, to get Serge Ibaka because they were worried about Lopez. And so, yeah, he's back, but judge them on their actions um, more than judge them on their words. And so that tells you a lot right there that they made that move. Um, okay, so when we last did this at the start of the season, one of the big topics of conversation in the NBA was – the way the officials were letting the players play. They were allowing physical play. Free throws had plunged. Scoring had plunged. Um, 
uh, Pelton, I remember we were talking about how scoring was down. You know, we'd almost gone back 20 years in terms of scoring levels. Um, Harden was complaining. Trey Young was complaining. Guys were racking up technicals. Here we are. I haven't heard any complaints about this in months. So now that we have a thousand NBA games instead of a couple hundred or wherever we're at, what do the numbers show about the calls and the free throws and the scoring? Well, let's start with the scoring because it is it is remarkable given where we started the season that March 2022, you know, so far through the first 20 days is the highest scoring month in since the ABA NBA merger that was not conducted <laughs> in the bubble. So the July 2020, which was eight games, and August 2020, uh, the rest of the restart, those are the two highest scoring. That was at 115.0 in August 2020. Where it was it the highest scoring August in NBA history. I just checked. <laughs> it was 100% that. Uh, but yeah, now you have to go back, I think, to the 1960s to find a month where the NBA has scored as prolifically as it has in March. And it's a combination of factors. So we do usually see over the course of the season that shooting gets better, turnovers go down offense typically gets better. And we knew that was going to happen to some degree, even when those numbers were way down in the start of the season. But typically what doesn't happen is that the free throw rate goes up. Usually that goes down over the course of the season because players are in better shape. They're reaching less things like that. Instead, what we have seen is that month after month, the, uh, the free throw rate continues going up this season. And it, there definitely is an element, I think, of you know, the, the point of emphasis becoming less important over the course of the season. But I was surprised. So one thing is I, I looked up, uh, I had posted that about the free throw attempt rate going up each month last week on Twitter. But this week I wanted to kind of look at, okay, are these fouls coming on the kinds of shots that the NBA was trying to take away in terms of the unnatural motion and, you know, Trey Young and James Harden and drawing a lot of fouls on the perimeter and baiting players into them. And the interesting thing is, the, if you look at the percentage of shooting fouls that have come outside the paint, it's higher now than it was at the start of the season when it was only 13% of shooting fouls were outside the paint, according to Second Spectrum in October, uh, 14% in November. But it's gone up to around 15% in February and March, which is still less than where it was last season. Last season, it was almost 17% of shooting fouls were committed outside the paint. So I do think the rules change, you know, and the point of emphasis here is still a factor. What's different is that there are a lot more fouls being called on plays at the basket within the restricted area than there were last season. That was 15% of shooting fouls last year. It's 16% so far this year. So I don't know whether that's a product of players getting to the rim more frequently or an actual shift in how that's being refereed, but that seems to be driving the massive growth in free throws much more so than it is just getting back to where we were last year in terms of the the foul baiting. Yeah, Brian, I'm stumped because there are a couple of things that just in terms of the eye test that belie that. I feel like we're in the age of the floater and floaters, I think by definition, are less likely to draw fouls. And yet, you know, what, what Pelton's saying is, is that actually we're seeing more in the paint. My only other pop theory, and this is also completely unfounded, is that defenders felt more emboldened after that first month seeing, oh, okay, we, we, we can be a little more physical in the perimeter. Uh, and then now there's been this correction where the emboldened defender has found himself now committing more fouls. And now we've seen this, this sort of counter correction, but, but those are completely weirdo pop theories. I'm kind of, I, I'm stumped because I mean, 
the only thing I can think of in terms of scoring is, hey, we, we just have more skilled players that good offense will beat good defense. And to the extent that you have better offense uh, in, in the defense is frankly, no better or worse. You're just going to have, I, I mean, Pelton, is it just a more skilled league? I mean, I don't, I, I, again, I, what do we attribute beyond just the 14 second reset, which, which was enacted a few years ago now, like, why are we just seeing 135 points on a regular basis? I, I mean, just, just in a very broad level, I'm kind of, I'm stumped by it. Yeah, I think it's a combination of trends. I mean, we wrote a few years ago one of our, our group pieces during the playoffs about you know the return of pace, and and that's yeah. been a factor in this certainly in terms of the raw points per game. But the league is also scoring more efficiently than it has in in NBA history. The pace is kind of back where it was in the '80s, and you know has been generally up until the 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 rules changes in the early 2000s was declining. Since they invented the 24 second shot clock, it started declining. So that counteracted that, but the efficiency had not had has also been climbing uh, to create the number of points per game that we're seeing. And a lot of it, I think, is that just the shooting is so good, defenses are so stretched out that we are now seeing the highest two point percentages we've ever seen. So if you do the uh, the top two point percentage months in NBA history, this month is right up there with that as well because of the fact that there's so much spacing. Yeah, I mean, um, just anecdotally, without knowing the numbers, like we had a 50-point score like almost every night for a week and a half and a different 50-point score. And I got to say, if you ever flip through NBA TV during the day and you can find a game from the early 2000s, you don't even need to have Pelton's tremendous spreadsheets there. Just watch the game. It looks like it's a, it looks like it's a completely different game altogether. Or, or you can way, watch a college game. True. Well, I mean, the thing that you that sticks out about college games to me is how much more aggressive the defense is in general, just in general. And that's bec- and that's one of the things that I noticed watching the conference tournaments. A lot of times, conference tournament play, especially the championship games, are bad basketball because the guys are playing three days in a row, or in some cases, three times in four days and that's more like an NBA schedule and you see you know they get worn out um you know there was even I don't even remember what game I was watching on Sunday but the, I think it was uh Wisconsin Wisconsin losing I can't remember who they lost to but the final yeah, score was like 49 yeah yeah and I was just like um you know that's what happens when you play a lot of high intensity games and you play defense that way which is why the NBA defense isn't there but anyway you go back and look at the game that I always talk about because I have it you know, to, you know, on digital that I can go to and look at it is the LeBron game where he scored 29 out of the Cavs last 30 points in the 2007 conference finals regarded as one of the best LeBron performances of all time. I defy you to go watch that game and say that that's one of LeBron's great performances. It may, because of the stakes and that he was executing a, um, a road upset and that he had never been to the finals before. And that is a team he hadn't gotten past and all that stuff. Like if you want to talk about it from that standpoint, sure. But if you actually look at the, the product, even as great as LeBron was like, that's not even in his, in terms of performance, it's not even in his top 10 playoff games. I mean, in terms of actual greatness of the performance um, without, you know, the, the, the circumstances, in the spacing again, the, the starting lineup for the Cavs yes. around him in that game, Big Z, 
Larry Hughes, Drew Gooden, Sasha Pavlovich. Yes. Yes. And, and the way the Pistons were playing him, which was basically all five guys standing in the paint and saying, come on through and him like, you know, pinballing off of them and stuff. But I'm just saying, like, if you watch a LeBron Lakers game, just pick a game in the last month. One of these games where he's like thrown in 38 or whatever. And I'm not even talking about the 50 point games. Look at the performance of LeBron in that game and go back and look in 2007. The style of the game is wild. And that's what these numbers are articulating. Speaking of the Lakers, one thing that I think that the, the large sample size can tell us is this is the weakest the West has been in maybe a generation and a half in terms of depth. Um, we very well now, you know, we don't know who the eighth seed is going to be in the current iteration. There's going to be the play in um, right now, as we sit here on Monday afternoon, the eighth seed Los Angeles Clippers are below 500, one game below 500. The Lakers, who are now in the 10th seed, uh, actually, they're tied with New Orleans, but New Orleans has the tie break at the moment. Um, the Lakers are 30 and 41. They're 11 games under 500. They could get into the playoffs. Um, the last time the Western Conference had a playoff team under 500, there's been a, a couple of times where they've a team at 500 has gotten in at the eighth seed, but under 500 was 1990. Seven. Okay. LeBron, I believe, was 11 or 12. Okay. That's the last time a West team did it. And, and like, by the way, I just want to point something out as a quick aside before I talk about the overall general weakness in the West. There's games tonight. So I, I don't know what's going to happen in these games, but the Lakers are currently in 10th. Um, the San Antonio Spurs, who had a Terrific win over the Warriors on Sunday. They are currently three games behind the Lakers in the loss column. Uh, the Blazers are also three games. They played a couple of fewer games. Also, the Blazers are quasi tanking. Um, so not not quasi. They're they're right. full on. Right. So I don't really. So, but I just want to point something out. The Lakers' remaining schedule at Cleveland, home to Philly, at New Orleans. Huge vital game at Dallas. Let me just put it this way at, at Cavs playoff team, Sixers at home playoff team at Pelicans on the road against a team right in front of, in front of them at Mavericks playoff team at jazz playoff team home to the Pelicans. These are two vital games. Nuggets at home playoff team at Suns, My God at warriors. Good God. Thunder at home. What a break. And the last game of the season, who knows who's going to be playing, but at Denver who, um, very well could be playing to try to get the sixth seed in that game. So that's um, what f two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven 11 games left, give or take, I think. No, uh, what is it? 11 games, including, including Monday nights. Yes. Okay. 11 games left and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them against teams likely to be play in or better. Okay. That's challenging. <laughs> now, let's look at the Spurs schedule. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, they play the Blazers, who are tanking, not one, not two, three times in their last, um, I believe they have 10 games left, okay? Yep. They play at Blazers, at Pelicans. That's a big one. At Rockets, awful. 
Grizzlies at home. That's tough. Then two at home with the Blazers. A home and home, as in they're not leaving. Then at the Nuggets, tough. At the Wolves, tough. Warriors at home, tough. And then at Mavericks. So their their last four games are going to be tough. Spurs have a significantly easier schedule. And right now, the Spurs have the tiebreaker because they went two and two in the regular season. Um, Lakers are probably going to get in. Anthony Davis is getting close to getting back. All I'm saying is people are watching where the Lakers are nine and 10. Uh, Keep an eye on the Spurs. The Spurs have a significantly easier schedule, especially over this next 10, 12 days than the Lakers. But either way, whoever is in that 10th seed is potentially going to be 12 to 15 games under 500. Now that's not, playoffs per se they're not in but like even the fact that a team like that in the west i mean there have there have been years where a team that's had 48 wins and not just one year multiple years in this last 25 since a, a losing team got in where teams that were had 48 wins didn't make it into the west playoffs so arnovitz is this large sample size is this the weakest the west has been in a generation yeah, and and there's good reason, right? For years and years and years, just the paragons of stability, reliability, where the San Antonio Spurs, the Oklahoma City Thunder, the Houston Rockets, who won more games, I think, than any team other than the Spurs during, I think, a 12 or, or season span. And, you know, at the beginning of the year when we were doing our predictions, you could just already pencil in like three teams for 50 wins, mark it down. The Clippers were very good for a very long time. They were a consistent thing. And you Portland. had these, Portland, yeah, but Portland, exactly. And, and, and then on the East, you had the flagship teams of the NBA, the Celtics, the Sixers, the Bulls to a great extent, just all going through rebuilds in, in Philly and in, in Boston's case for a while. Uh, and in Chicago, just kind of flailing to say nothing of the Knicks and the Nets. You know, there's big market teams that always punched well, well, well below their weight. But like the Spurs and the Thunder, that those eras are over. And now they are kind of like all other NBA teams, not in terms of organization and, and competence, but just in terms of trajectory. Right. Like they're they're going through the natural life cycles that franchises go to through often when they've succeeded for a long time and aren't the Lakers. They can just sort of go get a star and, and immediately reboot. So I think it's just the natural evolution of the Rockets, Spurs and Thunder being those hyper competent teams finally petering out and saying, okay, now we've got to go kind of, we, we, we've got to, we got to rebuild. Uh, we got to recycle. And I think that's, what's going on is we've lost a lot of the pencil them in for 50 win teams. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, the brave. For your business to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. Introducing Novo Business Checking. Novo is powerfully simple business checking. And unlike traditional banking models, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution that admires their brave. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash hoop. Plus, Hoop Collective listeners get access to over 5,000 
in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash hoop to sign up for free. Novo.co slash hoop. Novo Platform Incorporated is fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Ah, that sound has to make you smile. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Synchronize your online and in-person sales. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting, conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com slash hoop, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash hoop right now. Shopify.com slash hoop. Held in 1997, I was a freshman in college. Last time the, the the bottom of the West was like this. I was a sophomore in high school at that point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I do think it's throwing people off the scent a little bit because this is something I posted, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago on Twitter when I noticed it at that point, it was one through eight. Still the West had the better record at each, each of those spots in the East. That's no longer true because of the fact that uh, Brooklyn has started winning some games and the Clippers have not kept pace with them. So that's now a divide. But you look at the top seven up, the West's team in that spot still has a better record than the East team in that spot. And I still think the best teams in the league are generally in the Western Conference, assuming you know Chris Paul is healthy, Steph Curry is healthy for the postseason. I think we're more likely to get a champion from the West, even though there's not that same depth this year. So the champion of the West will beat the Celtics in the finals. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm going sons over I mean, I mean you're, you're speaking relative to the East. I mean, that's a different debate. I'm just talking about the general health of the West, which historically had sometimes 10 of the 13 best teams in the league. There were years when that was the case. And I don't know if that's, I mean, you're talking about records. Okay. Definitely the Warriors and Suns. But how many of the top 10 are in the, are still in the West? I mean, maybe you're arguing that you're still saying the preponderance are, but um, I've, I can never, you know, I cannot remember the dregs that I'm seeing out of so much a percentage of the West, even if you're arguing that the, that they are still right there with the East. I mean, I guess the thing that does underscore it, by the way, is that the Lakers entering Monday night's game have the same record as the Knicks. The Knicks are five games out of the play in in the Eastern conference. Like we're not even taking them seriously as a playing contender. So that's, that's how different the situation is between the two conferences at that level. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, and having said that, if Anthony Davis is healthy and going and the Lakers squeak in, you give, you know, you give a team with Anthony Davis and LeBron a fighter's chance at any one game series. I, well, I don't go ahead. Which is ironic because LeBron was kvetching 
about the play-in this time. Uh, of course. Couple years, right, right. That, that it was just, it was unseemly that they would have to kind of justify after finishing seventh. And now it's the only thing they would be just, we would be talking about them to Kevin's point, uh, like we talk about the Knicks. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, I mean, they the, were the in the, yeah, they're five they're games the out. Right. They were in the play in last year. I mean, right. they were in the advantage of the play and they would have made the playoffs uh, had it been the old school. But like, you know, uh, the play in is, 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 is where the Lakers have been. I mean, three of the four years LeBron's been there, the Lakers have been uh, on the outside of sixth place. <laughs> um, you know, had the play in existed before that, that's where they would have been. So um, another large sample size uh, uh, verdict, I guess you could say. All right, Kevin and Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Always love our, uh, our discussions of the sample size theater. I got smarter listening to you too. Um, and hopefully our listeners did too. Thank you to Jackson, our producer. We'll talk to you guys later this week.